Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word now, and as we ponder and reflect upon one of the great doctrines of our faith, one of the great truths of our faith, we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred in adoration towards your precious Son. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, you might know this, or you might not be aware of this, but um, this past Thursday uh, was Ascension Day. That is, it's the day in the church calendar in which Christians all across the world stop to remember and reflect upon the fact that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven 40 days after he rose from the dead. Many of our Catholic friends and Eastern Orthodox friends and also our Anglican friends usually actually hold a service on Thursday morning, usually around 7 a.m., in which they reflect upon the ascension of Jesus Christ. And I think it would be good for us this morning to do the same. I think as evangelicals, we have neglected one of the great doctrines of our faith by not focusing on the ascension of Jesus Christ. I think there's something very valuable about having seasons in the Christian life in which we stop to reflect upon the great beliefs of our faith. We do that for Christmas where we look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the fact that God became flesh in Christ Jesus. He was born of the Virgin Mary. We, we also look at Good Friday and Easter Sunday in which Christ died and then rose again three days later. But we tend to not focus or think about the fact that 40 days later, Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. And we need to grasp that the ascension of Jesus is just as important as the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For without the ascension, none of us would have ever received the Holy Spirit. In other words, salvation would never have come to us if Jesus did not ascend to the Father's right hand. Because it's through his ascension in which he sends the Holy Spirit into the lives of his people. And so I want to reflect this morning on the ascension. What does it mean? What's the significance for us as followers of Jesus? Now, this is going to be very similar to my Easter Sunday sermon. We're going to look at four truths about the ascension of Jesus. Now, we're going to be jumping around, so you can try to keep up with me, or you can just kind of take notes as we go along, as we're not going to be in one passage this morning. So the first thing we need to understand about the ascension of Jesus is that Christ has been installed and enthroned as king. Does anyone here know what passage the authors of the New Testament quote the most out of the Old Testament? You can answer if you know it. Anyone know? Psalm 110, Psalm 110 which Jim read for us. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. Now what many people don't realize is that Psalm 110 is fundamentally about the ascension of Jesus Christ. He completes his earthly ministry, his, his cross work and resurrection. He, he comes into the world and he, he dies on the cross for the sins of the world and he rises three days later. 
He completes his earthly ministry, but then he ascends into heaven and sits at the Father's right hand. As verse 1 of Psalm 110 says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, that is Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So the Father, this triune God, the Father says to his Son, come and sit at my right hand. In light of your living, Jesus, in light of your dying, in light of your rising, come and sit at my right hand. He ascends into heaven and the Father says to his Son, your work is complete. Come and sit at my right hand. Now what's significant about sitting at the right hand of God? Well, really, you could summarize it as this event of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God was his coronation. It was the installation of Christ as the resurrected king. It was an act by God by which he declared to the world that Christ has become king over all and has been given supreme power over all. The right hand of God is often used in the scriptures to demonstrate his power. And so Christ now has the place of power in the universe. Ephesians 1, 16-23 captures this very well. Paul is praying for the believers in the Ephesians and he says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, here it is, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see, Jesus isn't only risen, but he's reigning. He's not only alive, but he's sovereign. As he said to his disciples before he ascended, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And as the sovereign king reigning over the universe, he will accomplish his purposes. There's no person, there's no power, there is no evil that will thwart his will. And if he's king overall, that has major implications for all of us as humans. Because the scripture tells us that this king who ascended is also going to return in the same fashion that he ascended. In Acts 1, 6-11, Jesus is with the disciples and it's just before his ascension. And this is what we read in Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now just side note, that cloud, think of the Old Testament, fire by night, cloud by day. 
he was taken up into the very presence, the Shekinah glory of God. So he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, he's going to return in the glory of his father. Luke understands that Christ's ascension means that he's going to return as king. He's not coming back as the suffering servant, but as the sovereign king who's going to judge the world in righteousness. He will rid the world of his enemies and will establish his kingdom forever. And in fact, when you continue to read Psalm 110, you actually see this described for us. In Psalm 110, verse 5 and 6, it says this, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth which reminds us of Revelation 19, 11 to 21, one of the most terrifying passages in all of Scripture. When people say to you that the God of the Old Testament is not like the God of the New Testament, look at what Revelation 19 says about Jesus. Here's John having a vision. He's beholding this, these pictures, so to speak. And, and th these pictures are describing for John what words cannot describe. In a sense. So he says this Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who, would, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The king is going to return and he will bring relief to those who love him but he will destroy those who have despised his name. Are you ready for that day?
Are you ready to meet the king? To have his blazing eyes of fire fixed upon you? Friends, Christ came the first time to provide for you the means by which you could be ready for that great day. He died for your sins so that you could be ready when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And will he say to you on that day, well done, good and faithful servant, or will he say to you, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. So the ascension of Christ is his installment, his coronation as king over all. Secondly, Christ's ascension means humanity has been restored to its rightful place in creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, specifically Genesis 1, we're given a description of the mandate given to the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And it's interesting that when you read Genesis 1 and 2 and you understand it in light of the rest of Scripture, in one sense, Adam and Eve were given a royal-like function. God says this in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, the task given to humanity at the beginning was one of ruling over the creation. Adam and Eve were royal figures. All of creation was to be subject to them. And Psalm 8, drawing on Genesis 1, alludes to this idea. David is pondering the glory of creation in Psalm 8. And he says this in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And he basically quotes right out of Genesis 1. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now David here is king. At this point in Israel, he is the representative of God's people. But he also understands the people were meant to be a royal priesthood. He can see the created order and see that humanity was given a royal-like function over the creation. But when Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, an element of that rule and dominion was lost. Instead of creation being in subjection to humanity, creation now is in conflict with humanity. And Hebrews chapter 2 alludes to this in verses 5 to 9. And in this passage, the, the writer of Hebrews is demonstrating that right now, currently, Creation is not in subjection to humanity, but he also demonstrates demonstrates that Christ has restored humanity's reign in himself. 
So Hebrews 2, 5-9, this is what the writer of Hebrews says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, that is Psalm 8, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. So the Hebrew writer is understanding, he's speaking about humanity here in the plural, okay? Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Okay, so the, the writer of Hebrews is understanding, understanding Psalm 8 in Genesis 1 as everything is in subjection to humanity. There's nothing outside humanity's control. But then he says this, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is humanity. But then he says this in verse 9. But we see him. Now it gets focused. It goes from humanity to Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Humanity was crowned with glory and honor and now we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So what was lost to humanity, their their rule and reign over creation, is restored in Christ Jesus. He is crowned with glory and honor over the created realm. This means two things. That right now, there is a human, a man, flesh and blood, reigning over creation. In the control room of the universe sits a man. And one day the rest of humanity, his covenant people, will reign with him over creation and we will have dominion over creation. Secondly, one day we'll never need to fear the created realm again. Every day humans are killed because of Genesis 3. Every day, humans are killed because the creation doesn't subject itself to humanity. Every day, children die from lack of nourishment. People die from various diseases, floods, fires, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, famines, tsunamis. Every day, the creation is declaring to us human beings, we do not submit to you, for you are unworthy because of your sin. These are all reminders that creation is not yet subject to us. But one day, our human representative, Jesus Christ, who reigns over creation, will redeem us and the creation, and the creation will never again cause us harm. We will reign and have dominion over the created realm. There will be harmony between humanity and creation. We'll fulfill the task that was given to us in Genesis 1 and 2. Because of Christ's work of dying, rising, and ascending to the Father's right hand, restoring humanity to its calling to rule and reign. So Christ's ascension means that he's king over all, that humanity has been restored to its rightful place in creation. Human flesh sits at the right hand of God and rules. Number three, Christ's ascension means that we have one who stands in the gap 
interceding for us. When Christ ascended, his earthly ministry was complete. He accomplished redemption. He he conquered sin and death through his death and resurrection. His His ascension was the completion of his earthly ministry, but it was also the beginning of his heavenly ministry. Right now, Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for his children. In Romans 8, which I believe is the greatest chapter in the Bible, in verses 33 and 39, we have unpacked for us these glorious truths in light of Christ's death and resurrection. But it's easy to miss something in verses 33 to 39. It's easy to miss the fact that Paul's understanding that, that there's nothing in the universe that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus is partly because he understands that Jesus right now is currently interceding for us. So look at what he says in verses 33 through 39. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So in verse 33 and 34, he's saying, who can bring any charge against the people of God? Who can do it? Christ has died for them. Christ has risen for them. Christ is now at the right hand of God, interceding for them. And then question, the next question in verse 35, and everything that follows, Paul is is connecting to what he has just said, the fact that Christ has died, risen, and now he is interceding for us. He says this in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And part of the reason he's convinced of that isn't only because Jesus Christ died and rose again, but also because he's at the Father's right hand currently interceding for us. The reason you have not slipped from the grip of God's love is because Christ right now intercedes for you and for me. See, one of the reasons why you can have confidence that you will endure to the end as a Christian, even though you will stumble and struggle along the way, the reason you can have confidence is because the one who has all power within himself intercedes before his Father on your behalf. That child is mine, Lord. This is a deeply personal reality. In the Old Testament, the high priest wore a chess piece containing 12 gems of stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he would carry those names over his heart as he entered into the presence of the Lord on behalf of the people. Jesus carries our names upon his heart 
as he enters into the presence of his Father. You know, as Christians, I, I think that I think we would all say that one of the greatest blessings of being a Christian is having another brother or sister pray for us. Whether it's present with them and they're praying for you, or, or, or whether you just know that there are brothers and sisters, family members who are sustaining you in prayer. It's one of the great gifts of what it means to be a part of a church family, that we are upholding one another in prayer. But I wonder how many of us ponder the reality that the king of the universe prays for us. And his prayers don't fail. His prayers for you before the Father will be accomplished. His intercession for you will prevail. As Charles Wesley in his hymn, Arise, My Soul Arise, says, He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers, they strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh forgive him, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. The blood of Jesus speaks for each of us before the throne of God. He is our high priest. He is the one who intercedes for us forever. And unlike the priests of the Old Testament, his intercession is effective. His sacrifice was once and for all. He has dealt with our sin forevermore. So Jesus' ascension means that he's been anointed king, that humanity has been and will be restored to our rightful place. He's interceding for us. And number four, Christ's ascension means that we have and we will ascend into God's presence. That we have and we will ascend into God's presence. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. Now as a side note, you're going to see why this is important. In Ezekiel 28 verses 13 to 16... Ezekiel describes the Garden of Eden as the holy mountain of God. Okay? In the garden, God chose to dwell on top of a mountain. And Eden was the peak of the mountain. And there God was with them. They dwelt in his presence. They beheld his glory. They had sweet communion with God. There was no barrier between God and humanity. But then Genesis 3 comes along and they sinned against their creator. And they were banished from the garden. They were banished from the mountain of God. They descended from the peak to the bottom. They were banished from his presence. Eden is the chosen place of God's dwelling, but sinful humanity cannot be in the presence of God and live. And I would argue that the rest of the story of the Bible is seeking to answer the question, how can sinful humanity be restored to God in such a way that they can once again dwell in his presence and enjoy him forever? 
In fact, the scriptures ask this very question, specifically in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 24, 3-4, the psalmist cries out, Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift up his soul to that which is false and does not swear deceitfully. So the psalmist understands that that humanity has descended from the place that they were when they were in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. And so the question goes out, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who can actually stand in his presence and live? How can sinful humanity enter into God's presence? This is the storyline of the scriptures God is at work to restore what was lost in Genesis 1 and 2. For example, let's just think of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. God delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt. He takes them to Mount Sinai. He descends on the peak of Mount Sinai. But what do we discover? Israel can't go up the mountain, for if they do, they will surely die And the second half of Exodus is God giving Moses instructions on building a tabernacle. And the tabernacle, I don't have time to show this this morning, the tabernacle serves as a mini cosmos of the creation. The holy of holies in the tabernacle is the peak of the mountain. And it's through the tabernacle that God will be able to dwell in the midst of his people, Israel. But at the end of Exodus, after the tabernacle is built, God's glory descends into the Holy of Holies, into the tabernacle. And we're told at the end of Exodus that Moses was still not able to enter into the tabernacle. And that's why Leviticus is written. Leviticus follows Exodus and Leviticus unpacks for us how it is for sinful humanity, for Israel, now to be able to enter into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. In light of his dwelling in the tabernacle, Leviticus unpacks for us the things that must be done, the sacrifices that must be made in order to behold God's glory and receive his blessing. But even as you read through the Old Testament, it's still not like Genesis 1 and 2. Entering the presence of God is still limited. The holy of holies is still barred from the people. The high priest can only enter once a year on the day of atonement. But then Jesus comes. I realize I just skipped over a large portion of the Old Testament. But then Jesus comes. He does all that is necessary to enter the holy of holies. And at his death, we're told that the veil in the temple is torn in two. Isn't it interesting that Jesus never once entered the Holy of Holies while on earth? He never entered. Most likely he would have been barred from it, but I think there's reason for it. Jesus never goes into the Holy of Holies to pray. He goes to the mountain peaks to pray on top of hills. There's a reason for why he's doing these things. He was establishing the new way. He was saying that the old covenant was coming to an end. The old forms were passing away. The new would come. The people of God would now worship me in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter where you're praying 
or worshiping because now the age of the Spirit has dawned. Jesus would become the temple. He would become the meeting place between God and man. Jesus ascends into the Holy of Holies, but not the earthly one, the heavenly one. As Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ has ascended into the presence of God as our human forerunner on our behalf. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall enter into his holy place? And the answer is simple, none other than Jesus Christ. He is found worthy to ascend the mountain peak and to enter into the presence of Almighty God. You see, Jesus restored what was lost in the garden Adam and Eve descended from the mountain peak. Jesus ascends back up into the mountain peak. There in the presence of God. A man, a human right now is dwelling in the presence of God and he lives. He ascended into the holy abode of God. And what's even more incredible is that Paul argues that because we've been united to Jesus Christ by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit, we've also ascended with Christ into God's presence. Ephesians 2, 4, 6. In verses 1 through 3, Paul unpacks for us that we've been dead in our transgressions and sins. But then in verse 4 he says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and here it is, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is hard for us to grasp, but right now if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been united to Christ, and because Christ has ascended into the presence of his Father, the scriptures tell us that you are there with him. And this is why I said we have ascended and we will ascend. Right now, because of the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God has been bestowed upon us, we can in some form, by faith, participate now in the presence of God. Anywhere. In a way that the Old Testament covenant believers could never do. But we will also one day experience the fullness of God's divine presence when Christ makes all things new. Revelation 21, 1-3. Just so you know, if you're going to attend here a lot, you'll probably hear Revelation 21 and 22 a lot because they're just beautiful. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. This is why the ascension is so central to the Christian faith. It tells us that Christ is king. It tells us he's coming back to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. It tells us that we will one day reign with him as we were always meant to do over creation. It tells us that we have a high priest who's seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us at every moment of the day. And it tells us that being in Christ, we have ascended into the very presence of God and one day we will know the fullness of that presence forever. Christians, this is why we stop to reflect upon the ascension of Jesus Christ. And may this truth stir in you a deeper desire to worship God in spirit and in truth and to give your full life to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a glorious Savior, for such a glorious King. We thank you, Father, that we can actually come before you in confidence into your presence, that we no longer need to bring a sacrifice, we no longer need to ask a priest to to act on our behalf because our risen priest, Jesus Christ, is right now currently sitting at your right hand, interceding for us, and we come with confidence before you. And we pray, Lord, that through the ascension, Lord, that each of us would seek to live a life of ascension, an ascension life living in your presence, walking in your presence, aware of your presence. Help us as your people to strive to live more and more for the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.